of pure evil. He's the embodiment of all of Jekyll's own internal evil. He is terrifying and violent. He is uh, unremorseful in his evil. There is absolutely no redeeming characteristics of this man, Mr. Edward Hyde. He is pure, distilled, refined evil, unmixed with any good. Nothing honorable or noble about him whatsoever. It's much like the difference between me pre-coffee and after coffee, I think, actually, now I think about it. Um, other way around, actually. Pre-coffee, after coffee. Um, here's one of the points of the story, right? It's, it's kind of a commentary on the, 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 the human nature. Uh, and the, 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 one of the points of the story is that, um, really, that evil was in him all along. Right? The, like, Mr. Hyde was just that evil part of himself that kind of got cordoned off. But it was there all along. It was just mixed in with the good parts of his character. Uh, but this guy, this monster, was, was there all along. He didn't just come into being. He was just hidden, mixed in with the rest of Hyde's character. And so uh, the question that he kind of like raises is, who's the real man? Is it Jekyll or is it Hyde? Which one's, which one's more real? Which one's more fundamental? Who is he? Like, which self is most truly himself? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it Jekyll or is it Hyde? And um, the answer I hope, I, hope you, I hope you would see with me is that, well, really, they're both fully him, aren't they? They're both part of who he is. So they're both fully who he is. Uh, and this, this passage in Romans 7, as you would have heard from the reading just now, it also speaks to this war, this struggle, this battle, this perpetual tug of war between good and evil within a person. So we're gonna, I'm just going to read now from verse 15 through to 23 if you have the reading. Uh, we just heard it, but it's one of those passages that it'll help to hear it a second time. This is Paul speaking. From verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. Has anyone been there? <laughs> what is this? It's like that, 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 that meme of the man looking in the mirror saying, Why are you like this? Why are you like this? Why do you do this? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Again, who can't relate to this? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, who's not, who can't resonate with that? Now if, I do not, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So then, I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is a passage of, a, of a an internal struggle. A desire to follow God 
and also this perpetual downward tug towards sin. Uh, before we go any, any further, though, to kind of unpack what this is saying to us and, and, and try and work through it a bit more, there's a big kind of overshadow. There's an elephant in the room on this passage, which is where all the discussion is kind of centered on, which is this. What is, who is Paul talking about exactly? Who, who, is, who are these verses meant to apply to? Uh, as I said, this is one of the more disputed passages in the Bible because there are some good reasons to read it two different main ways. Um, and so through Christian history, there has been some lively debate, let's say, between good Bible-believing Christians trying to understand how to interpret these verses. Um, and so whenever it is, just, just like a, as a general rule, whenever there is a good amount of sincere debate among Bible-believing Christians about a passage, we just need to be a little bit humble when we enter into that fray and know that let's, yeah, let's, have, a, let's have a humble view of, of, of ourselves and our own ability to make sense of these things. Um, can I just start by saying there are some great reasons to read this either of the two main ways. There are genuinely good reasons on both sides. Uh, I'm going to give you, hopefully in like two minutes, a quick overview of the main two positions, why both, the arguments for both, and show you where um, both Matt and myself land and, and many of the others as well. Um, but before we move on, we've got to do some of that. So, firstly, first position. Some believe that these verses are talking about Paul's experience following Jesus. Paul's experience as a Christian. And that he's speaking about his life as a Christian, battling against sin. That's, it's, that's probably the majority view of this passage, by the way. Most people through history have, have, have read it that way. Uh, the modern-day greats like J.I. Packer, Tim Keller, John Piper, John MacArthur, Michael Kruger, Truckload Moore, as well as guys like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine. Okay, so you're in good company if you're on that team. Um, very, very, very good company. Um, the other team think that Paul is talking about his pre-conversion experience as a Jew, as a sincere Jew trying to follow the law, but without the Holy Spirit to empower him. So he's stuck in this trap. That's the way these other people read these verses. Again, some great, well-respected teacher on that, teachers on that side, guys like Douglas Moo, Tom Schreiner, uh, Mike Bird, and then back in church history, guys like Oregon from the early church. Um, my favorite example of, of like how this can play out is... Um, Matt actually shared the story, so I'm, I'm borrowing his story. He was in a lecture with this Romans lecturer, uh, one of the best Roman scholars in the world at the moment, Tom Schreiner, and he's lecturing about this. And as he gets to this point, he says, look, I used to be on the first team, and I switched to the second team. Uh, my wife thinks I'm an idiot. And she's in the room, and she goes, yeah, you just like overcomplicate everything. Like, this, it, it's not that hard. Like, I think that you're wrong here. And um, everyone had a little giggle at the fact that there was this, like, this, like she was there to kind of call him an idiot. It was great. Okay, two minutes to make my case for e either, either way so that we can move on with trying to understand what this means. Um, at first glance, I think everyone who reads this, their first instinct is going to be to read it through the lens of a Christian. Right? That, as a believer, when you read the Bible, this is the, the assumption we bring to it, and so I think it's the most natural way to read it that Paul is talking about, his experience as a Christian battling against sin. It's just intuitive. Like It resonates with us when we read that. Um, but the Bible, some, some people are going to point out the fact that there's some problems with reading it that way. So the first problem is um, just how hopeless a picture Paul paints of this. It just comes across so hopeless. 
he seems to undo all of chapter 6 with what he says in chapter 7. Chapter 6, he was talking about how a Christian is free from captivity to sin. We preached that not long ago. We preached those messages. Do you remember those messages? You're free from sin. And then he comes and says this in verse 14. He says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So that's, that's one problem, right? How can a Christian say that he's sold under sin when he just went and said, I'm not free from the power of sin? Again, verse 23, Paul says, I am captive to the law of sin. Hold on, Paul, didn't you just say in chapter 6 that you're not captive to sin and now you are captive to sin? It seems to contradict what he has just said, and so that's one reason why people say it looks like he's talking about his pre-conversion experience. Second problem is that these verses have not one mention of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 18, uh, chapter 8, so next, like the next chapter of the Bible, Romans 8, mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times. And that seems like a bit of a... One, one, uh, one commentator said it was an eloquent silence trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And so, look, those are some, those are some important points. Um, let me give you three reasons why I think to, to, help, to help kind of push back against those ideas. Three reasons why I believe that we should see this as the experience of the Christian and not um, as they believe, like a pre-conversion experience. Um, and again, I'll say that Matt, Matt's on my team on this one, and um, he, has his different, he has slightly different reasons why he thinks this is the, the case, but um, you can go ask him why he reckons this is the case. So firstly, why, is this the, why do I think this is the, the Christian experience? Firstly, there's a really significant change in tense. He goes from talking about past tense to present tense in there, in verse 14. And so he, he, um, he goes from talking about his old experience as a Jew to his current experience in this over 20 present, ver- present tense verbs. So there's a clear transition in verse 14 where he goes from talking past tense to present tense. And I think that that should indicate something about what he's trying to say. Secondly, if he is talking about some kind of hypothetical past, he just needs to say something that makes that clear. It's just, he never gives us any clues that that's what he's doing. He kind of just, so the people that go that way, I think, I think it's just, it goes against the kind of the plain reading of what he's, what he's saying. Uh, and finally, in my mind, this, is, this, is, this was the clincher for me when I thought these things through. Um, the best argument against like apparent hopelessness is that Paul isn't, these verses aren't meant to describe the entirety of the Christian life. But these verses show us moments of the Christian life. We have these moments, don't we? We have these moments where we feel trapped, we feel hopeless, we've, we're free from sin and yet we've sold ourselves back into slavery to sin and we're under its power again. These, I think... He's talking about moments of defeat, moments of weakness, moments of sheer frustration. And ultimately, as we learned in chapter 6, yes, a Christian is free from slavery of sin. Why? Because we've been united to Jesus. And yet we find ourselves returning to captivity, stuck in sin again, hitting our head against a brick wall again because we've taken our eyes off Jesus again. And we need rescue from that. Finally, final massive reason is that we can turn to Galatians 5, 17, I think I have it up here, where Paul is clearly talking about Christians, and he says something very similar. So this is another incredibly important reason. Galatians 5, 17 is going to teach the exact same thing, just in different words. 
He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, no matter how you read Romans 7, Galatians is clearly talking about a spirit-filled Christian, correct? There is a battle in you. There is a battle between sin and the Holy Spirit in your life. And I think that's what Romans 7 is talking about. And so now that I've done that, that's just... So now, now, I can't preach Romans 7 without kind of taking you through that little exercise to see that. Um, let's go back to our Romans 7 passage. There's going to be some things we're going to see. Romans 7 shows us, it describes two different kinds of battles. Two different battles. A battle we can't win and a battle we can't lose. And I'm going to reference Mr. Dr. Keller for... Dr. Tim Keller for those two helpful categories. Um, the battle you can't win and the battle you can't lose. The first battle is what Matt was taking us through last week. If you remember Matt's message last week in verses uh, 7 to 13, uh, Paul here is talking in past tense. Okay, he's talking about his experience before becoming a Christian, about how the law proved to be death to him because he had no ability to live out of the law. So this, this, is the first, this is the first battle. Trying to live a moral life in your own power. Trying to fight your own evil in your own power. Think Jekyll and Hyde, right? He didn't have the ability to deal with the Hyde that was in him. Can't be done. Why can't it be done? Because that evil goes so much deeper than the surface. It is deep within us. We can't do anything about the fact that it is there. Today, right around the world, as I'm speaking, there are people, countless people, millions of people, good people, who are trying to fight this battle that they can't win. They want to live good lives. They want, they want to do the right thing. They want to be moral people. They don't want to be evil. They want to be good on the whole, right? That's their aim. They want to live genuinely good lives. Maybe this actually describes you. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're like, I want to do the right. I want, like a, I want to be a good person. I want to do right by people. But just like Dr. Jekyll, there is a Mr. Hyde in you. There is a Mr. Hyde in all of us derailing our efforts towards that end. There is a Dr. Uh, Mr. Hyde in all of us such that we can't even live up to our own standards of what we know is right, let alone God's perfect law. Deep down, I know that I probably shouldn't have that seventh cookie. I don't, like, I have the information. I know that that's a bad idea. And yet, what happens? It's not just that we don't have the, the right information. It's that there's something broken in us, right? We just don't do what we know is right. We just can't do it. We can't consistently do what is right. We all the time do what we know we shouldn't do. It's just part of the human condition. We fall so short of our own ideals, let alone God's perfect ideals for us, his perfect law. Something is deeply corrupted in you and in me and in every human being. Something is dysfunctional. At the deepest level, something is broken. Every 
bookstore you walk into, half the store is what? Self-help section. There's a whole entire industry out there banking on the fact that you'll never fix this. And they can keep money, making money on that fact. Because they, want, they, they know that they can get money out of you trying to fix yourself. Matt last week preached about this. This idea that there is no way you can work yourself out of the hole that you're in by your own efforts and live a life pleasing to God. Can't be done. It's impossible. This is why each of us desperately needs Jesus. So, if you're here today and you are perfectly content with how your life looks, if you're here today and you have life going exactly as you had planned it, and if you are here today and there is nothing inside of you that troubles you, even a little bit, I'm not, I'm not sure what God can do for you. Not that he can't do it, but that you can't receive it. If you are so content with how you are and there's nothing inside of you that you would have liked to see change, I'm not sure you can receive the grace of God. But, on the other hand, if you are here and you know that there is something deeply and profoundly broken at the deepest level of who you are. If you've ever looked in the mirror and asked yourself the question, why are you like this? Why do I do this? Why is this happening to me at the very deepest level of your heart? I think if, if you're here and you know something's wrong, you're ready to receive Jesus. Becoming a Christian is making this essential step. Becoming a Christian is making this essential step where we shift from the battle we can't win to the battle we cannot lose. Why does it become the battle we cannot lose? God enters in. God enters in. He begins to change us from the inside out. He begins to give us spiritual resources we can't manufacture. We will never earn our way into God's good graces by our own moral record. He wants to gift us grace, forgiveness, his perfect righteousness, the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sin. Look at the verses with me, 15 to 20. These tell us the battle that we can't, we can't lose because God is in the battle as well. Verse 15 to, six, uh, to 20. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. But the very thing I hate, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. See that? So he's, he's saying, yes, the Holy Spirit. But in, in, in me, just what's in my flesh, in my natural being, nothing good. It all comes from the Lord. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. Do, do you see here there's still this battle, okay? So cl clear as day, the second battle is still clearly a battle. Can you see the inner conflict here? So here's my question. What's different now 
that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? What's different between the battle you couldn't win and the battle you cannot lose? Is it just like Jekyll and Hyde? Where you've got this evil part of yourself that's just there. You're going to have to deal with it until you die. For the Christian who comes to faith, is your sin, the sin nature that's in you, is it, is it equally part of you as, your, as this new part that comes from God? That's the question. We actually see the, the, the answer in the text. Do you see that there's, there's a, repeat, a repeated sentence there? You, I can't see, you can't see both on the screen, unfortunately. Verse 17 and verse 20, repeated refrain, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying that the sin inside of you is no longer fundamental to who you are anymore. Do you see that? It's no longer fundamental to who you are anymore. It was. You were Jekyll and Hyde. Not anymore. As a Christian, you have had a vital shift in identity. You have changed. Your nature has changed. You are no longer in slavery under sin because you have been joined to Jesus. You've been bound to Jesus supernaturally. This is what we're looking, about, looking at in Romans 6. Let me just read to you quickly from Romans 6. This is really important. I'd love to be preaching this message on the back of Romans 6. Unfortunately, it's been like two months since we were here. Let me just remind you of what we saw in Romans 6. This is 6 and 7 and then 14. He says, we know that our old self, this is the old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, look at it, enslaved to sin. No longer. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you, no power over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see this? You have died to sin when you believed upon Jesus. And you've been united with him such that you died his death and you have been raised with him to new life. In a very real and supernatural way, friends, your old life died with Jesus on the cross. In a very real yet supernatural way, you rose the day that Jesus rose. And in a very real and supernatural way, your life has been inextricably bound to his, such that you are no longer bound by sin because he isn't. What is true for him is true for you. A new life, new heart, new desires, new power. You are no longer bound to sin. You are as much bound to sin as Jesus is because you've been joined to him. What's true for him is true for, for you. And so, yes, there is a battle. Romans 7 teaches that clearly, as does Galatians 5, 17. However, this is no hopeless battle, is it? The power of God courses through your veins. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. There has been a fundamental change to who you are, such that Paul can say, it is no longer I, but the sin that dwells within me. That's not who I am anymore. Yes, the sin's made its home in me, but it is a wounded bear and it's going to die one day. It's no longer I, but the sin in me. I am not my sin anymore. 
Christian, you can say that. I'm not my sin anymore. I'm not my sin anymore. It's not who I am. Jesus comes. He sets us free. And he binds us to himself. Binds us to himself. He gives us the power to live a new life. At this church, we say Jesus changes lives. Yeah. He does. He really does. He sets us free from our sin. And so to finish, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you just a warning and two encouragements out of this text to take away as we consider what to do with this. Let's start with the warning first. Something that clearly comes from this passage is this. Sin still lurks in your heart. So continue to fight against it. You will need to continue to fight against the sin that is in you. Guard against it. Fight against it. Don't be so naive to think that Following Jesus means you sit on a cloud and float up to heaven singing worship songs. You're going to need to persevere. You're going to need to fight. You're going to need to join the fight if you're sitting on the sidelines. Don't capitulate. Life of faith includes a battle against sin. It does. You're going to need to resist. You're going to need to push onwards to receive the price. You need to take up your cross and follow Jesus. You are, Christian. Don't think your life of faith is going to be easy, so don't give up. There is too much at stake in your life to capitulate. Your eternity is on the line. The eternity of those around you is on the line. Satan wants to destroy you. Don't forget that. Keep fighting the good fight of faith, friends. Let me encourage you as well. Here's the first encouragement. Don't pretend you've arrived. Don't pretend you've arrived. You still have fighting to do. You still have growing to do. Even the Apostle Paul here is honest enough to admit there is this real battle in his heart going on all the time. You can admit that about yourself as well. You can admit that you are not perfect, that you have not arrived yet. You will not arrive in this lifetime. So can we just all like exhale for a moment and go, ah, I still have some growing to do, and that's okay. No one, like, if you're here and you're not perfect, guess what? Welcome. You'll fit in fine. <laughs> You'll fit in fine. We have, or I should say, you are not perfect, but we, you have a perfect savior. And he's rescuing you day by day. He's rescuing you day by day. What Romans 7 teaches us, ultimately, is that the mark of a Christian is not a sinless, perfect life, is it? The mark of a Christian is faith, repentance. Not a sinless life. The struggle is real and it is there, and don't pretend it's not there. Here's my final word of encouragement for us as we um, try and draw strength from Romans 7. My last encouragement. Look away from yourself and look to your Savior. Look away from yourself and look at your Savior. This is what I've found in my life and from talking to other people. This is what I have found. When you take your eyes off Jesus, the Christian life can feel like drowning pretty fast. Do you know what I'm talking about? It can feel pretty hard pretty quick when you stop looking to Jesus. get real discouraged real fast, don't you? Sometimes, just from my own experience, it can feel like trying to keep your face above water when you've got weights around your ankles. It's like, 
that's hard work. Jesus has more for you than that. You can't live the Christian life on your own moral effort. You can't do it on your own steam. You need the Holy Spirit's power. So do not fight in your own strength. Don't get frustrated when it becomes hard because you're trying to do it in your own strength, like the two-year-old trying to lift up a heavy thing when his dad's there and saying, I got this. I'm like, of course you can't lift that. You're two. He doesn't expect you to be able to do what you can't physically do. Look at this in verse 28, 24, 25 to finish. This verse, this hopelessness, erupts in verse 24. He says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? This is the desperate heart cry of a man who is so broken, so frustrated, so hopeless at himself. He is lost. He knows there's no hope for him in himself. Which of us can't relate to that moment? I've had this moment. I'm certain you've had this moment where you look at yourself and you're just hopeless, frustrated, deeply frustrated. Some of you have had this week. This has been your week. Some of you have had this year. Look at what follows. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But thanks be to Christ. But thanks be to Christ. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to Christ. Friends, when you have that verse 24 moment of desperation, which you're going to have, make sure you push through. <laughs> And have that 20, verse 25 moment of hope and release and salvation. It is there for you. This is what makes all the difference. This is what makes your faith going from being, this is what makes your faith a life source and a strength to you and not a burden because Christ is in it with you. So lift up your eyes. When you find yourself despairing, lift up your eyes to your Savior. Stop navel gazing. Stop navel gazing. It's depressing. Lift up your eyes to your Savior who has saved you, who loves you. How's this from uh, Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane? He says this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Love that. Anogra, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's where you get your hope from. If you navel gaze, of course you're going to be hopeless. You are hopeless. In Christ, you are not hopeless. So for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. When you find yourself downcast because you keep falling over the same hurdle again and again, look up to Christ. Remember his grace. Remember his salvation. Remember his cross. Remember what he did to rescue you. Receive that grace. Let me just read the whole quote because it is so good. Robert Mary McShane. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled upon you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of his sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him, 
let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there'll be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Isn't that good? For every look at yourself, take 10 looks for Christ. Take 10 looks at Christ. Let's pray. Father, when we, when we really do come to terms with who we are without you, Lord, we do feel hopeless. I feel hopeless. I feel the words of Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin, Lord. I feel that in my bones. That has been my story. I know that's been the story of many here. Lord, we can't fix ourselves. We can't earn your love. We can't earn anything in your kingdom. And yet, Lord, you have decreed that we are loved, blessed, saved by the grace of God, saved by faith alone in our perfect Savior. Lord, would you help us fix our eyes upon you? Would you help us to truly live out this? For every look at ourselves, take ten looks at you, Lord, and remember your grace and your majesty. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for the fight, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you lead us? We want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit day by day, Lord, and do war against sin. Would you make us holy? Lord, we know we haven't arrived, Lord. We know we've got some traveling to do, Lord, but we don't want to give in. We don't want to capitulate, Lord. So Holy Spirit, transform us. Lead us, guide us. Fill our hearts with hope when we are feeling helpless in ourselves. Jesus, you are so good. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray now over our church, Lord, that we'd be a church that follows you wholeheartedly, lives in the, what's the way he said it? We live in the smiles of God. We bask in his beams. Lord, that's where we live. We live in the smiles of God, Lord. Not through us, but through Christ in me. Not through us, but what Christ has done in us and for us. Lord, would you make us um, serious yet happy people? Serious against sin, Lord. We don't take it lightly, Lord, and yet we're happy in what you have done. Would you help us live out that, that amazing gospel balance in our lives. Lord, yeah. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.